following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. So sometimes, boys and girls, you do something, you know it's wrong, and your conscience bothers you, and you voluntarily go to your parents and say, I did this, I took this thing, or I uh, picked on my brother or my sister. And your parents will thank you for doing that. And they might say something like, well, you know, since you have come forward and told us, we're not going to, we're not going to spank you this time. Now, I want you to understand that what you did is very wrong, but we appreciate your coming to tell us. That's called considering extenuating circumstances. That's a big word for what your parents do for you sometimes. But it's an important concept to understand because what your parents do is also what happens at times in our law courts. There could be a very uh, wise and righteous judge who, in considering the problems with the person who is guilty, and he'll say there were extenuating circumstances and he will not uh, uh, give out as extreme a punishment as he could have. But God himself does that. What does Solomon say? That it's uh, the man who steals because he is hungry. It's not as evil as the man who steals out of greed. God himself takes into account extenuating circumstances. Well, that's the background here of what Job is pleading now with his friends as he responds to um, this attack. You notice that chapter 6 begins, then Job answered. Remember that in chapter 3, Job vented, he overshot himself, he um, said many stupid and, and foolish things. He wished for death, but it was simply death as a release from this physical uh, pain that he was enduring. And he was beginning to pray a bit, lamenting, but why would God drag it out? Now, in response to him, in chapters 4 and 5, we saw Eliphaz's first speech. Eliphaz was the oldest and the wisest of Job's friends, and so he spoke first. And Eliphaz, although recognizing in the past that Job had done uh, good and righteous things, he himself had been a wise counselor, uh, Eliphaz says, but now you need to apply to yourself what you taught others. And Eliphaz, as he sat there with Job for seven days on the ash heap and in and out, uh, had come to the conclusion, along with his friends, that Job was a wicked man, he was a hypocrite, and all that had come to him was because of some secret sin or sins. Now in chapter 4, he lays out some very important principles. They're all true, uh, and they're true in many areas of life, but they have to be applied carefully, and he did not apply them properly to Job. And so, although we can learn from the things that he said, uh, we also can learn from how he said them wrongly. In chapter 5, he comes more directly to apply uh, these principles to the case of Job. He tells him to, to quit fighting against God, but rest in him. Again, that's true, but uh, wrongly applied in, in this case. To, to a degree, Job was, was fighting some. And then he gives this great promise of, of really physical prosperity if Job would repent. So it's in this context that we read now, then Job answered. So this is the beginning of the dialogue between Job and his friends. Now, some in reading these verses say that Eliphaz and Job passed like ships in the dark. 
If you've studied debating, you know that you've got to be able to uh, come in and show how each side is related to the other. You can have a tree to show that. But uh, they say that, that Job was not, was not talking to Eliphaz. But think about it, he really was. So what we have in these two verse uh, chapters is Job's answer to the accusation that because of his words, because of his wish for death, uh, because of how he was suffering, that he was a hypocrite and a, a, a notorious secret sinner. And so Job's first response here is to defend himself, both in terms of, yes, his language was wrong, uh, but he was unwilling to say that his wish for death was wrong, and he defends that now in a prayer. So what I want to show you this morning, though, is from Job's response, particularly for ourselves, that in the midst of affliction, we are to maintain our integrity and a good conscience. In the midst of our affliction, we're to maintain our integrity and a good conscience. So first, we are to maintain our integrity. And Job does this in the first uh, seven verses. Notice how he begins um, in verses uh, two and three. Oh, that my grief were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my calamity, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the seas. Therefore, my words have been rash. So Job is admitting here in the end of verse three the impropriety of his speech. It was sin. They were rash. They, they were wild words. What he's asking for is the extenuating circumstance. He says, you men have not entered into where I am. So he tries to explain the depth of his suffering. He uses a tremendous figure of speech. You've seen the old-timey scales, boys and girls, where you've got a tree and you've got two... Uh, plates, so to speak, and you would weigh things by putting certain weights on one side until the other, and it matched. So what Job is saying, put all my grief, all my sorrow, all my pain over here, and then weigh my words by it. He said, my grief and sorrow is heavier than the sand of the sea. Do you know how much heavier sand is than topsoil? Immensely so. And if you just think about it, what is sand? It's ground up rock. And then sand of the sea would be wet sand, which would even be heavier. And so he said, my sorrows are as heavy, weighing down as wet sand. Put that on the scale of my words. Consider them. Yes, they've been rash. I spoke, though, out of a depth of pain and sorrow. And then he changes the figure. In order to show us the great depth of his sorrow, in verses uh, 4 through 6, For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. You see, and we've already said this, uh, Job's affliction went far beyond the loss of his property his livestock, even the loss of his children. No, Job had come to a, a, a different, a strange place in his experience. And the best way he could describe it was in language that God has become his enemy. 
You notice he, he recognizes the sovereignty of God. That, that's clear throughout this book if you read it carefully. Satan recognizes the sovereignty of God. Job recognizes the sovereignty of God. And so he says here that what he's suffering are the arrows of Almighty. Remember, Almighty is the patriarchal name, the, the all-powerful God. He said, God has shot arrows into me, poison arrows that now dry up all my life vitality. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. You see, what had happened was Job, to a degree, built into the presuppositions of his friends. One of the things this book corrects is this terrible heresy today of health, wealth, and prosperity. That's what was driving all of his friends. Uh, anybody that was suffering the way Job suffered had to be a sinner. If you were a righteous person, you're going to prosper. And to a degree, that had been Job's experience. He walked with God. He knew that everything he had was from God, and he enjoyed the blessing of God, though, if you remember, he says in chapter 3, he never was presumptuous about that. But God was his friend. But now something has happened to him. It's, it's, not, just the, it's not just the emotional grief. It's not just the loss. No, the terrors of God are reigned against him. He has entered into uh, an awful place of darkness. He'd known God as friend, and now he can only see him as enemy. He'd known communion and fellowship with God. And now, God just terrified him with the terrors of his awful holiness. God had withdrawn. And Job felt in his soul the depth of this. It was, it was much worse than simply the, the physical grief uh, that he was undergoing. Sometimes the Lord withdraws his special presence from us. And our confession teaches us that. And it is to train us. And sometimes he chastens us for sins. And I don't know if some of you have experienced that or not. But if you have, then you, you've got some inkling of what Job was experiencing here. I trust that you've not experienced it and will not experience it. But if you do, remember that God never has become your enemy. Even if he withdraws his presence for a period of time... He's hidden his face from you for a short while that your heart might quicken and, and run hard after him. He uses another analogy to uh, emphasize then the great spiritual grief that he has. Um, in verse 5, does the wild donkey bray over his grass or does an ox low over his fodder? Now it's a boys and girls, that's a rhetorical question that demands a negative answer, okay? So, if a donkey has food, is he going to bray? No, he's going to eat. If uh, an ox or a cow uh, is being fed or milked, is it going to moo? No, it's quiet. And so, what, what Job is saying is that if a dumb beast in hunger or in longing expresses that with groans and complaints and braying and mooing, how much more would I, uh, a man in God's image? How do I express myself in this? Um, you see, I'm only crying out, he says, because of the immensity of the pain, particularly the spiritual pain. Now, the next analogy, you can apply it one of two ways. Verses 6 and 7, can something tasteless be eaten without salt, or is there any taste in the white of an egg? 
Now, if you've tried to eat an egg without salt, and you're like me, you know that it is just absolutely awful. Or even this, uh, uh, the white of an egg could also be just some kind of awful, tasteless, pasty thing. Uh, juice of a plant, perhaps. And so it needs salt to become palatable. Then he says, my soul refuses to touch, and them is added here, but to touch their loathsome food to me. Now he could be talking, this is the final analogy, to be talking about uh, his trials, and that he just cannot even bear the thought of them. But he also could be talking in verse 6 and 7 about the council of uh, Eliphaz. It's loathsome food. It's, it's not the answer. You know, the ox is not going to be fed by this. The man is not going to be satisfied by the words that Eliphaz has uh, to say. Now, in all of this, you see what Job is doing. He is vindicating his integrity. Yes, he admits he's spoken over the top. He's spoken rashly. But he simply says, cut me some slack. Can you not understand why I've expressed myself in this wild manner. And from that we learn the importance of times in our afflictions to be willing to vindicate ourselves. That's, that's what Job is doing here. And it is an important principle. Whitfield operated on the principle that he would never do so. And that was out of humility, but as he was slandered and whatever, he would never in any way defend his integrity. See, that's not wise. Because it's, it's not the, the, the minor things that some few people say this thing or that thing or lie about us or slanders. It's when they begin to get a rise of opinion against us and it becomes a serious matter because for the sake of, of gospel integrity or for the church or for, for our witness. And it's, it's that point that's in, that we do what Job did. Yeah, I sinned, but listen, I'm not a hypocrite. I know that. My conscience bears testimony to me. I'm not a hypocrite. And you can understand why I spoke the way I did. Well, some say, well, Jesus didn't do that. So when he was on trial, uh, he was silent. But he had to be silent. He was before his sure is dumb because if he had defended himself, he'd have gone free. Jesus' silence was the necessity of his offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And he would be vindicated three days later. And he knew that, even as he suffered in silence. We see here, Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul's uh, bit of sarcasm and irony as he talks about attacks on him and Apollos. But Paul often, for example, in Galatians and, and in the Corinthian letters, has to defend his apostleship because it has to do with the integrity of the gospel. And so you must be willing, well, back up, you must live with integrity. And we'll come back to that. But you must be seeking to shape your life by the word of God. If that happens, if you're doing that, and then you are attacked, and it comes at a level that affects gospel witness or the, your family or the, or the reputation of this church, then you have a responsibility uh, to defend yourself, as Job uh, does so here. Um, let us also remember that not only is Job asking them to cut him some slack, that we should do the same thing for one another. 
So we also read in 1 Corinthians 4 about not jumping to judgment against others. And James says that God is the lawgiver. He's, he's the judge. And you and I can be very quick. We see uh, someone suffering really badly and we immediately develop, uh, or particularly if they have mis- they've not responded well to that situation, what they've said. Um, and we're quick to judge. But the Holy Spirit is teaching us here that we need to cut them some slack. You've been there. You know how you've spoken wrongly in the midst of of pain or suffering or or heartache or trial. And so when a Christian friend is doing that, don't don't jump down their throat. Don't be quick to judge them. Be patient with them. Know that it might be a few days before you can come back and and talk to them about that. But the other beautiful thing here is is that uh, just as God calls us to... Um, take in extenuating circumstances as we saw from Solomon he does the same thing with you and me in fact has any one of us here this day ever been judged or chastened by God according to his behavior no he is so gracious to us he is constantly remember in Psalm 103 he's he is the loving Father. He knows we are but dust. He knows our, our frailties. His goodness, as he describes it to Moses, after the wretched event of the idol calf at Mount Sinai was, that he's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. Now, you, you know that, don't you? You know how slow to anger he is and, and rest and revel in that. because and he can do that because Christ has atoned for all of our sins. He also accepts our sincerity then in responding to him. As our chapter on good works teaches us that uh, our works are always going to have sin and weakness and flaws in them. But he accepts them for Christ's sake. He accepts you for Christ's sake. And he bears long with you. But then be concerned about integrity and defend it. Well, the second thing uh, that we have here then is to keep a good conscience. So Job has first defended uh, his speech, his, the rashness of his speech. Now, not defending what he said or in the way that he said it, but now he's going to defend the right to ask to die. There's a lot of controversy here in the commentators. But follow me with this. So he says in verse 8, Oh, that my request might come to pass, and that God would grant my longing. Would that God were willing to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. Eliphaz has basically said that the desire to die was wrong. And what Joe is admitting by the rashness of his words, I said it wrong. But notice now, what he's doing is he turns it into a prayer. Notice that look that my request This is language of petition, language of prayer might come to pass, that God would grant my longing. He now has turned his attention unto God. And he's now, rightly or wrongly, praying that God would take his life. Now, in doing so, he recognizes that only God has the right to take our life, and he will take our life in the time that he has appointed but he's pleading with God to, to take his life now, to take it immediately. Uh, in verse 9, would that he were willing to crush me. And, and here the, uh, 
the language takes us back to Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken. You were dust. To dust you shall return. You shall be crushed. You shall be brought back to dust. Oh, that God would turn him back to dust. Loose his hand. It's only God's hand that sustains our life. Take your hand away. Cut me off from the land of the living. Now, Job still, in the manner of the request, um, is not perhaps as submissive as he should be in, in recognizing that in God's providence there might be other ways. Uh, but he now is asking God to do this. He's asking God in faith to do this. He's recognizing that only God can do this. Now, in order to defend this request to die, he gives three reasons. And the first one is in verse 10. This is where we get to conscience. It is still my consolation or my comfort. I rejoice in unsparing pain, but I've not denied the words of the Holy Spirit. If we've got three different translations here, we'll have three different translations of this verse. Uh, I think this gets as close as any. Um, that it is in comfort. Some would say in comfort he's going to die. Here, the New American Standard takes this, that this comfort is that, and he could rejoice in unsparing pain, which again, the, the word rejoice here uh, is only used here in, in the Hebrew in the Arabic, it's of a stallion pawing the ground. It can be leaping up for joy or whatever. Um, and then in unsparing pain, another difficult verb. Uh, and they put these two together. Rejoice in unsparing pain. But I've not denied the words of the Holy One. So it says, as I'm praying for death, focus now has changed. I'm, I'm praying now to God, and I'm doing so... Uh, with a good conscience. I'm doing so. Um, I can rejoice even in my pain because I have not denied or hidden the words of the Holy One. Now, you read this here in Job, almost in the middle of the Bible, and nothing sticks out to you. Get a concordance. This is the first use in the unfolding of redemptive history. God is called holy or the holy one. It's only in the writings of Moses and Exodus that the word holy and holiness begin to be used uh, in the history of God's people. So regardless of of when one thinks Job was written, I think Job was written uh, before Moses wrote, perhaps edited by Moses. But whatever you see in his experience now that he has grown in a grasp of something. He's grasped that The Almighty is holy. Holy in being. Which means he is separate and transcendent from all the rest of creation. Glorious in all power and might. Holy in character. There's within him no darkness. There is no ill. There's no sin. There's no wickedness. And he's separate from all of these things. And so the angels are incessantly crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Job calls him the Holy One. And the one then who's the fountain of all holiness. Now, he probably is keen in here to what Eliphaz says in chapter 4 with his vision. That uh, God is a righteous God and none can be righteous with him. 
He's building on that. Yes, I understand that, he's saying. I, I know the Holy One as well as you do. I've not hidden his, his word. Uh, but he is not only just holy, he's the fountain then of all holiness. And thus he deals with us by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he pardons our sins and constitutes us legally righteous in our justification. So now the Holy One can come into communion with us. And then the risen Christ, as we sang in Psalm 47, sends the Spirit. And the Spirit indwells us to make us holy. And that's what you find then in the writings of Moses. In Leviticus in particular, I'm holy, you be holy, you be holy, because I am holy. And Job is expressing here, in the first place, a delight in a holy God. And a delight in personal holiness. But then notice the word. I've not denied the word of the Holy One. Now, he didn't have a written word. He would have had visions, like Eliphaz. He would accept Eliphaz's vision. He would understand the word that's been communicated uh, from Adam to Noah uh, down through into the patriarchal period. And whatever he knew to be truth, he rested there. But he, he had such impartial revelation, in a sense, impartial evidence. And what do you have? You've got a complete revelation that's self-attesting. Every page leaps out with a declaration, this is the word of the Holy One. And thus it is a holy word. And he does holy works. And so Job is saying, as I am praying now for death, I can look back at my life. And I'm not what you men say I am. I'm not praying for death to escape the consequences of, of some terrible sin. No, I can die in confidence because I have a clear conscience. It's the only way that one can die in confidence. You know that. William Perkins uh, said that um, if you would die well, you must live well. If you live well, you'll die well. We'll come back to this relationship of integrity and, and, uh, and conscience. But that, that's his first ground. Now the second one, and this verse is even more difficult, and that is, um, what, verse 11, what is my strength that I should wait, and what is my end that I should endure? So he's saying that... Um, well, Eliphaz, you've promised me all this stuff. You know, you promised me, once again, prosperity and health and a long life and all of these things. But you know, what is that now? What is that to me where I am now in life? Why? I'm a weak and, and broken man. Uh, what, am, what am I waiting for? No, it's my end. It's my end for which I endure. And I follow Joseph Carroll here. He's talking now about what comes after death. He's talking about what he'll express much more clearly as the book goes on. But now he's looking at something different from all that Eliphaz has promised, something beyond this life. It's for that reason he says that he can pray for death. When he first longed to die, it was simply a physical escape. But now you see it's with a good conscience. He's thinking about what lies ahead. And then the third thing... Um, is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze? Is it that my help is not within me, and the deliverance is driven from me? He has endured well, better than probably any of us will know. We'd be kept by the grace of God as well. He has endured well, but he's at wit's end. At wit's end, not so because of all that's happened, but because now the blackness of God that has come over him. 
It's basically saying, I'm not, I'm not made of, of, of stones. I'm not made of bronze. I so easily can collapse. And then verse 13, again, a difficult verse, and I prefer uh, the translation here of uh, the ESV. Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? Basically saying is that I am not of stone and bronze, and there's within me no physical reality, spiritual resource by which I can uh, endure. Of course, he doesn't. He didn't know what we know. He did not have the Holy Spirit indwelling him. You need to understand that the Holy Spirit indwells each of us personally. Thus, we have a resource that goes beyond all human comprehension and imagination. Now, Job had the resource. He, he, had, he would have had the reality of the promise. There's no temptation taking you, but it's just common to man, and God will, with the temptation, bring a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. He didn't know that. At least at this point, he didn't know that. And he's saying, I'm, I'm at wit's end, and I could deny God. And that, he did not want to do that. He had not denied the word of the Holy One. And so he's basically saying, Lord, take me before I do something that is really, really shameful. And so he expresses this desire to death, perhaps not yet as temperately in prayer as he should have. But was this a proper prayer or not? And I think it was. I think it was. I think that there are other instances in which believers may ask God to take them, as our good friend Kathleen Curto did, recognizing the end was near. Um, you or a loved one could be in pain that is, in fact, humanly speaking, unbearable. And you're afraid that in pain you would deny God. Or you, you've begun to get some sense of heaven. They're great stories. I mentioned before the book, Archibald Alexander, Thoughts and Religious Experience, and the testimony of saints when they didn't have dope to dope them up. Uh, before they went to heaven, uh, hearing angels sing, having some sense of the beauty and, and glory of God. But if you're all doped up on morphine, you're unconscious. You see, you can't enjoy your family. You can't not enjoy those experiences. Are, the, are those times that it's, is, is it not proper that, yes, if it's God's will, I will live. And God will give me grace to do whatever it is he calls me to do. But it's not wrong submissively to pray, but your will, Lord, take my life. But your will take the life of that loved one. Also, we know that God at times takes the lives of people prematurely, so to speak, to deliver them from sin. Isaiah says something to that effect in uh, chapter uh, 57, 1, that God takes away the righteous to deliver them from calamity. It might just be from difficult circumstances and persecution and martyrdom. It might be even um, their own sinful relationships. You remember the story of the son of Jeroboam. Abijah was dying or was sick and they went to inquire of a false prophet and and the prophet of God meets them ahead of time and he says he's going to die. But he says this. God took the young man, or he, God took the young son of Jeroboam because in him alone was something pleasing to God. God had done a work of grace in this little boy's heart. And God protected him from being 
reared in a household of gross idolatry. When I was pastoring in Mississippi, uh, there was a man, fairly young, uh, I believe wonderfully converted. And shortly after his conversion, he died unexpectedly. Um, and I thought of this verse, these two verses at the time, because his entire social life was bandits, robbers and drunks and gamblers. And I would have been fearful for him as one converted and yet living in that context. I think that what God did was he converted him and then he took him to spare him that calamity. And so God does take us. Um, but it's so very important that you maintain a good conscience. A good conscience. Now, how do you maintain a good conscience? Well, we uh, saw in our meditation that the conscience is good when it's been sprinkled by the blood of Christ and delivered from guilt. And so initially when God converts us, um, our consciences are cleansed of the guilt and accusations of sin, and we have peace. But then, of course... There's yet within us a remnant of sin. And so we sin daily. And so maintaining a good conscience is not being sinless, but confessing our sins to God and when necessary to one another. As you do that, then you can, uh, you can say with the Apostle Paul uh, in Acts 24:16 before the king, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And so dear friends, in our affliction, in your affliction, you seek to maintain integrity. You seek to maintain a good conscience. You see how they interrelate. You're converted. Your conscience is clean. The Spirit of Christ lives in you, and you begin to walk, as we read in Deuteronomy 10, in the law of God. But, of course, daily you sin. So you confess your sins, and you maintain a good conscience. So set the law of God before you as the path in which he would have you to walk in order to maintain integrity and thus a good conscience, both in your acts and in your words and in your thoughts and your motivations. Of course, as we think about that, we recognize the great difficulty. But there's one. There's one, as you well know. And his strength was not of stone and bronze either. No, he, um, he felt the arrows of the Almighty. Poison arrows in the garden. Oh, if it's possible, take this cup from me. On the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he endured all of that. And he died as a shameful man under awful reproach and condemnation that he might bear our reproach and condemnation. Not just before men, but before God. And in his resurrection, he was vindicated. There is our vindication. But now, because he has our nature, his spirit indwells us. He understands fully what we go through and desiring to walk within integrity and to walk according to the law of God. And so I urge you, set before you the law of God and by his grace and might, walk in it and rest in Christ then for pardon, for the clear conscience, for power to walk in the ways of the Lord. Let us pray. 
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.